Well, God's continuing to do some great things through Wallula Christian Church, and uh, Dave and John this morning did a great job of highlight, highlighting some of the good things that he's doing uh, in our community, just uh, a little bit closer to us, kind of in our Jerusalem and, and our, around the area, and so uh, I'm just excited for what God is doing, and, and uh, this morning, thinking a little bit about, you, you know, we appreciate and we sort of celebrate first. We remember uh, people who were the first one to accomplish something. We, we remember firsts in our life, you know, that first car or the first job or the first kiss or whatever it is. We, we sort of remember those firsts and they stand out to us. I did a little research and thought I'm going to find some important firsts in history. So I found some really important stuff like the... the Father of all skyscrapers. This home insurance building was built in 1884 in Chicago. How tall do you suppose this first skyscraper was? How many stories? Somebody said it, 10 stories tall. This uh, just towered above the Chicago skyline. The first skyscraper in Chicago in 1884. The first national park. You guys probably know this. What was the first national park? Yellowstone. Somebody said Yellowstone. And in 1872, Ulysses S. Grant declared uh, the Yellowstone Park a protected area. And so it's our, our first national park, sort of a, a little more dark, you, you know, side of first. Uh, uh, some of you are worried about robots taking over the world. And uh, the first human to be killed by a robot was in 1979, January 25th of 1979, a gentleman by the name of Robert Williams was struck in the head at a Ford plant by a robotic arm. Uh, Another first that maybe stands out. Uh, The first controversial video game was, uh, I don't know how it could be controversial with a name like Death Race, but it, it was in 1976. It was a game that required you to try to hit as many gremlins, which were sort of little blocks, you remember those video games at the time, and, and uh, you ran over as many gremlins as you could. I like the working title better, because before they settled on this uh, sweet name, Death Race, they were just calling the game Pedestrian, which I sort of, makes me giggle, I don't know. So the first controversial video game. Uh, I, I kind of fell in love with this first, A little guy by the name of Oscar. I think we have a picture of Oscar. There's Oscar. Oscar was the first animal to uh, receive bionic limbs. His back legs were replaced with these uh, artificial limbs in June of 2010 after an unfortunate combine accident. The first animal to receive bionic limbs. And kind of the most interesting thing to me as I read this article is they didn't just say in 2010. You know, in June of 2010, Oscar received these bionic legs, which makes me think that he just beat somebody out by a hair. You know, there's another animal out there with bionic legs, which is sort of, again, I'm sorry, don't send an email, but it kind of makes me laugh. These firsts sort of stand out, and firsts in our life stand out, and and sometimes we look at firsts, like if you, you see pictures, or you go to an old car show, and you see these really, really old automobiles, maybe the steam-powered automobiles, and you sort of look at those and you say, how in the world did they ever work? How in the world were people ever safe on these, you know, first cars without stuff like brakes 
on them. You know, how did that, how did that go? How did that work? And in other firsts, we just wrapped up a series where we were looking at the early church, the first church in the first couple books of Acts. And you look at the, the first church, the first local church, and you say, man, they kind of nailed it. You know, we want to be a church like the, the church in Acts chapter 2. And so sometimes we look at first and we say they nailed it. But whatever the case, whether we wonder how that ever happened or how they ever thought of it or how it ever worked or whether we think, man, they nailed it and we want to we be as much like that first as we can, we can learn from the first in our life. We can learn from the first in history. And as we begin this brand new series that we're calling Marriedish, this morning we're going to take a look at the first marriage in history. And I think we can learn quite a bit from that first marriage. And just as we begin this series, kind of we'll take an overview of marriage. And I really believe that we can, we can experience marriage in the way that God intended. We can experience intimacy in marriage in the way God intended. And I think that Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25, as we kind of take and examine this first marriage in, in history, I, I think it teaches us or highlights for us three observations that we'll make this morning about that first marriage. And as we make these observations, we can, we can learn to experience intimacy in marriage like God intended. If you have your Bibles, I'd appreciate you opening them to Genesis chapter 2. We'll explore verses 18 to 25 this morning as we consider three observations about this first marriage in history. Uh, easy section of scripture to find this morning at the very beginning of the book. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, this is what God's word says. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Three observations that I want to make this morning about this first marriage as we consider how we can experience intimacy in marriage the way God intends. Observation number one is that there was a very first not good. Verse 18 says, the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. Now if you go back and you consider the creation story up to this point, we've only heard, uh, and God thought it was good, and God said it was good. If you go back to the, the beginning on the first day and the first and second day of creation, God created light and he created the sky and he created the seas and he, he created land. And then in verse 10 we read, and God saw it was good. He created on the third day plants and vegetation, and then in verse 12, and God saw it was good. On the fourth day, God created uh, stars and the seasons, and in verse 18, and God saw it was good. 
On the fifth day, God created birds and fish and sea creatures. And in verse 21, and God saw that it was good. And on the sixth day, God created all the animals and uh, livestock. And and in verse 25, and God saw it was good. And also on that sixth day, God created sort of the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, human beings. And if you look at verse 31, God sort of puts an exclamation point on his creation. And he says, it was very good. Good, speaking of humans, speaking of people, mankind. And he said, man, this is really, really good. And, and so then you get to, to chapter 2, verse 18, and, and we're reading about Adam being created and being alone at this point, and God says, it's not very good. It, it's not good. And uh, he, he, this is sort of first not good in, in creation. Uh, you have to understand, first of all, the way Hebrew literature works sometimes. Just a literary device that is often used in Hebrew literature is that the, the author will take an overview of what's going on. He'll give you the big picture. And that's what we read in, chapters, uh, in chapter 1 of Genesis. You get the big picture, the overview of creation. And then in chapter 2, the author sort of uh, zooms in on a certain part of that creation story. And we're zooming in at this point in the creation of humans. So we don't get different stories. We just sort of get an overview, a big picture, and then we get a zoomed-in image of a particular event in that creation story. And in chapter 2, verse 18, we're zooming in on the creation of, of humans, of, of people, and at this point, God's created Adam, and Adam is alone, and God said it's not good for man to be alone. It's just sort of incomplete. It's not finished. His creation isn't finished at this point. The very good hasn't come along. It, it, my mom will visit on occasion. When my mom and dad come to visit, my mom, you know, I didn't get this way on, by accident. My mom will bring cookies. And once in a while, my mom does this thing with her, her desserts. You know, she, she wants to try to make the cookies more healthy. And so she'll, she'll make these cookies, and she'll bring them, and she'll say, what do you think of this cookie? And you, you take a bite, and when your mom brings you a cookie, you, and you take a bite, and you go, this is just like in Scripture, not good. This is not good. And, you, well, it's your mom, so you can't, you know, you, you say different things than, mom, this isn't good. You say, the kids are really going to like these cookies. They're going to enjoy these and, and have them. But she, she makes these cookies and she'll try to make them, you know, more healthy by maybe only using half the sugar that the recipe calls for. All right? And you take a bite of this cookie and it's all right. You know, it's, it's pretty good. But just something is missing. It's not complete. It's, you know, put more sugar in the cookies, Mom. You, you need that to kind of finish the project. And, and God's looking at creation. And when he says it's not good, well, something's missing that God created humans to be, live in community. To live. He created us for relationship. And at this point, those relationships just aren't possible. And so God has an answer for this problem, though. Uh, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, often when we study this, this story in particular, and just some stories in scripture, you know, there's language that causes us to get hung up a little bit. And uh, even right, right away as we begin this series on, on marriage, you know, maybe there's some language that sort of causes us to stop and say, what, what's really, what does God really intend here? What does scripture really mean? And, and when you read a word like helper, you know, some of us read a word like helper and we think, you know, assistant, somebody who's 
sort of, you know, a step down on the totem pole or whatever, or, you know, inferior in some way. And if you dig just a little bit deeper, though, and you kind of go to, to the Hebrew behind uh, the word that we translate as helper, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that shows up an awful lot in the Old Testament. And often in the Old Testament, when you read about God's people requiring help, and God coming to the rescue, God coming to, to help his people, extending help to his people. It's the same Hebrew word, it's the same concept that we read about in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Now, I, I think just before we get started too much, if we should consider that if this is the description used in the Old Testament of God and his help for his people, then, you know, certainly the Old Testament isn't describing God in some sort of inferior way. It's not placing God as sort of second behind man, behind humans. That's not what the Scripture intends. That's not what uh, the Old Testament's trying to teach about God. Is It's sort of the opposite, right? That, that uh, you know, God is a gracious and loving God and will, is, will extend his help to us, and that's an amazing thing. And as we read verse... 18 of chapter 2, we have to realize that every one of us needs help in this life. It's, it's sort of the bigger point of the whole passage, that it's not good for us to be alone, that God created us for relationship. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, not least among those is that we need help in life, that we're not intended to do this thing called life on our own, that we don't have all of the answers that we don't have the tool set to solve all the problems that we're going to encounter in life. And we require help sometimes. We certainly require help from our Creator. We require help from God. Every one of us is in the same desperate need of a Savior. We require that grace. We require that help, and God extends it to us. But just on a practical level, every day we require help. We need uh, community that God has designed us for. And and uh, one of the ways uh, that we live out that community is in the marriage relationship. So God promises to make a helper suitable for Adam. And then in verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So we, we, we realize the first not good. We read the first not good, that, that people were designed for relationship. They were designed for community. And at this point in history, that was uh, not able to occur. And then we get this weird sort of interlude where God says, Okay, Adam, you're in the garden. I've given you the garden to work, and, and you have this job to do. And one of the jobs I want you to do is I want you to name these animals. And he brings the animals by, and, and Adam names them, how, whatever that looked like. And however that happened, you know, Adam did that. He went about his business and his work. And at the end of verse 19, we read, uh, you know, there's no, no suitable helper was found. And it's sort of... You know, did God really believe that maybe Adam would stumble across, you know, an animal in his creation that he said, yeah, this is, this is the animal I need to live in relationship with. This is, this is going to supply the needs. And I, I don't think God believed that, you know. That's not, in fact, I think he intended the exact opposite. If you could backtrack just a little bit in the chapter, you'll realize that God had given Adam uh, some blessings already. That Adam was enjoying some pretty amazing uh, blessings from God. Look at verses uh, 15. 
in 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God put Adam in the garden, and he said, I've given you the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God has given Adam work. He's given Adam the opportunity to worship him. He's given Adam the opportunity to obey him. So there's lots of good stuff already going on in Adam's life. And I think what we read in verse 19 and 20 is, as God says, okay, I want you to go about that process. I've given you a mission. I've given you purpose. I've given you this opportunity to work in worship, and I want you to do that right now. And so Adam starts to do that. He, he's working, and as he's working, he's worshiping, right? Work is a part of worship. It's one of the broader uh, lessons we learn in the creation story that, that, you know, even though the curse carries uh, some difficult times in our work, that work's not intended just to be drudgery, that work's part of our mission and it's part of our worship, and that's being lived out in Adam, and so Adam's enjoying all this good stuff that God has given him, and at the end of verse 20, he still realizes, though, well, something's missing. You know, these cookies only have half the sugar. You know, what's, what's wrong with this picture? There's still that not good that we've encountered here at the, in the creation story, and that not good is that God created us. He designed us for relationship. He designed us for community. And at this point, Adam's without that community. He's without that, the opportunity for that relationship, and it's still not good. All right, observation one is that there's a very first not good, and, and that's that we're not designed to be alone, but we're designed for community. Observation number two is that we're designed for intimacy. We're designed for those relationships and intimacy within those relationships. Verse 21 says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She called, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So we get kind of this second creation story. And I think there's a couple things that we, we need to highlight here as we consider, you know, that we're designed for intimacy and how that, what that intimacy ought to look like in our relationships. The first is that, uh, you know, there, even though Adam is in this amazing place, he's in this paradise. You know, as you read through and you read even through the fall, you'll realize that Adam is walking around in this garden. Evidently, so is God. Whatever that looks like and however that happened, he's, he's in the very presence of God. That's pretty amazing. It's really beyond words for a simpleton like me to figure out how to explain how big a deal that is and how cool that is, that Adam's in the very presence of God. And yet our God is so big that even in this extraordinary circumstance of being in paradise in the presence of God, there's some stuff that God says you're not ready for. You can't handle this. And it seems that sort of the origin of the miraculous, you know, God's not going to allow Adam to be privy to that. And so he, he causes them to fall into a, a deep sleep. I just think that's amazing that God is that big. That even though he's in this 
close relationship with Adam, there's still some parts of God that he says, just not for you yet. So he causes Adam to fall asleep. And then he creates Eve. I think when you read the creation story, and here we, we get zoomed in on the creation of, of Eve, of, of, of women. And I, I just think at the, at the core, at the most fundamental level of this creation story, we have to remember that we are important to God because we are his creation. That, uh, you know, male or female, no matter what race, no matter what socioeconomic status, no matter what nationality or, or whatever, you know, that we matter to God because he designed us, because he created us, that people matter to God, and so people really ought to matter to us. And as we just consider, you know, how do we experience intimacy in our relationships? Maybe you're in a relationship right now. Maybe it's even your marriage where you are struggling in that relationship. And, you know, he's made some decisions or she's made some choices. And you, you haven't figured it out yet. You, you're not sure what to do tomorrow. And whether that's a relationship with an employer or a friend or a spouse, you know, I think just out of the most basic fundamental place, we have to remember that no matter the decision, no matter those choices, no matter what was said, no matter the actions that were taken, no matter who that person is, they matter to God. They are God's creation. That he's designed them and he loves them. And because they matter to God, if for no other reason, if for no other reason, because they matter to God, then they ought to matter to us. And, and I think just sometimes that as we go through life, we, we lose those just simple fundamental truths. That we have to live that love out in our lives and we have to, we have to share that love with others. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And he brought her to the man. We're designed for one another. We're designed for relationship. And, and God introduces Adam to Eve. He introduces uh, this opportunity for, for fellowship and for communion. Just as, just as he's already illustrated and displayed, you know, you go back to chapter 1, and the, you know, chapter 1, verse 1 says, let us create, let us make. God is himself uh, living in community in the Trinity with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so he, he's living out this community in himself, and he, he's designed his creation to live in community. And now he's established the opportunity for that relationship and the opportunity for that uh, intimacy to be lived out. And every one of us requires that and needs that, and marriage is, is one way to experience that intimacy. We need that intimacy in any relationship. You know, sometimes we hear a word like intimacy and we sort of, we sort of jump to a conclusion about what somebody might be talking about. I suppose especially in church, right? I mean, you know, you, say, you, you, you read the title, Intimacy in Marriage, and, and maybe you think, well, you know, the preacher, and, and you might be on the right track with this one, right? The preacher will blush if he says sex in church, and so he uses the word intimacy instead. 
But we require and we, we experience intimacy in every one of our relationships just in different ways. If, if you just do a very simple thing and just look up the word intimacy in the dictionary, you're going to read a list of definitions in the dictionary about intimacy. And, you know, when I did it, I, I read through six definitions, and finally at the, that sixth definition, you read about sex. That's the definition, but it's way down the list, right? Certainly, uh, sexual relationship is a component of intimacy that we experience and we ought to experience in marriage that God has set aside exclusively for that relationship. But we're designed for community and we're designed for relationship and we're designed for intimacy in every relationship. We, we need each other. Adam goes on in verse 23 to say, This is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And, and bones of my bones is just a Hebrew expression that sort of means blood relative. And she'll be called woman and man. And it's just a play on, on words in the Hebrew. It's to, to illustrate for us the closeness of man and men and women. And it also highlights the difference between men and women. That, that you know... Women were created, that Eve was created to be similar to man and also to sort of be the opposite all at the same time. You know, it's sort of part of the beauty and the, how amazing God's creation really is. I, I'm coaching my, my 14-year-old daughter's softball team, and we're at a softball practice, and we're practicing, and, and one of the young ladies on the team says, you know, coach, I think we need visors. I said, okay, no, no, we need visors. And we're going on practicing, and she said, you know, coach, I think, we need, I think we need those wristbands so we don't have to have signs. We need wristbands so we can communicate and call in the place. And I said, okay, uh, that's fine. And then a little later in practice, the same young lady said, coach, you know, it's the fall, and I think we need pullovers. It's going to get cold. We need pullovers so we can play in these pullovers uh, during the game. And I said, okay, let's, let's just try to practice. You, you make a list and send it to me later, okay? Let's, let's try to focus on what we're doing. And she said, yeah, that's fine, coach, but I think you need to know that uh, boys and girls are different. I said, yeah, I got it. I'm, I'm on board. And, and verse 23 just reminds us of this. You know, again, sometimes we get involved in life and we, we rush past the, the, the obvious in our, in our culture that you know, God created people and he created us all in very similar ways. You know, we're a, we're a reflection of his image. And so we all sort of have that same reflection. And yet the, that reflection is really radically different at the same time. It's what makes the, the, our relationships work and that uh, the real intimacy in, in the relationship possible. Observation number three is that maintaining intimacy takes work. Look at verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. As you read through the uh, Bible and, and you read about marriage, and, and even the teaching in the New Testament about marriage really relies on what we learn in the Old Testament about marriage. It, it, it's, a, 
It's a picture of a covenant relationship, and it's very similar, again, to the covenant relationship that that God has with his people. They sort of reflect one another. A covenant, just a definition of this idea of covenant and marriage is that a covenant begins with a promise from one partner to another. It involves the acceptance of that promise by the other. The giving and receiving of promises is publicly known and publicly acknowledged in some covenant sign, and then this external legal covenant framework becomes the context in which a relationship based on these promises begins to grow. The covenant thus has an external social legal framework, an internal heart centered on a personal relationship. So all of that says to me that a covenant is a promise made between two parties, in this case a man and a woman. There's promises shared between uh, those individuals. And those promises aren't just known to those individuals. Those promises are known uh, to God, And they're known to uh, the community at large, that uh, we require that that broader context of community. And it it sort of answers that question, if you've ever thought or you've ever heard somebody say, you know, why do we really need this legal document to be married? Well, you know, sort of the very first marriage was designed to be a covenant relationship that requires not only promises between two people, but promises between those two people and God, and promises between those two people and the community at large. There's a, there's a social context that, that uh, marriage requires and, and that, that covenant lays out. In verse 24, we read about a little bit more about that covenant, that uh, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, sort of three parts to living out that covenant in marriage. The first is leaving, that there's a new family being established. And while that doesn't mean ignoring or leaving behind, uh, you know, your mother and your father and this other family, it does mean a shifting of priority in relationships and that you're, you're placing your priority on your husband or your wife or and that, that relationship takes priority over them. So there's a leaving that provides an emotional and psychological con- confidence and one another that's, that's emphasized by this emotional and physical leaving from one family to another, and that beginning that new family. So leaving is the first part of that uh, covenant. And then being united to one another. If you're reading an older uh, version of Scripture, an older translation rather, you might read this word cleave, or you've maybe heard pastors use that idea in church before of marriage is about leaving and cleaving. Cleaving is a word that means, you know, is being translated as united, being uh, brought together. And they're sort of, that's sort of lived out in different ways as we're united. It's, it's just the word for faithfulness, that we're, we're being faithful in this new relationship. And uh, in marriage, we need to be faithful to a vow. You've heard me say before that love is a choice. You know, in the, in the New Testament, there's different Greek words for love, and sometimes we get pretty captivated in our idea of falling in love, and we, we sort of express love, and, and the Greek would use the word eros for that expression of love, and that's sort of how uh, somebody makes us feel or how their actions make us feel. And, uh, you know, if you take it outside of the context of relationships, you might say something like, I love green beans. You know, you really enjoy green beans, but if you, if you uh, pour the wrong stuff on green beans, you know, I don't know, you dump a 
bottle of mustard on green beans. Maybe you don't love green beans anymore. Your, your taste, your experience, your feeling toward them has changed. And, and sometimes we sort of are captivated, captivated by that eros sort of love uh, about how somebody uh, can make us feel or the experience, how that makes us feel. But agape love, a godly kind of love, is a, is a love of faithfulness to this choice, to this vow. So we make this decision ahead of time that I'm going to love this person you know, no matter you know, how bad they get, sort of idea, right? We have this faithfulness to a vow. We have a faithfulness to a calling. That marriage, we, we sometimes limit it to sort of this social construct, but marriage is part of our, our calling of God if, if we're married. If we, if we enter into that relationship, into that covenant, then it becomes a part of our purpose and a part of our mission. And If we have one job to be a witness to, to the world, then we, we begin that witness in that marriage relationship, and that marriage becomes a part of our purpose and beca- a part of our mission. So we have a faithfulness to a vow and faithfulness to a calling. We have a faithfulness to a relationship relationship, this communion with one another, and that third component of, of the uh, covenant relationship is one flesh. You know, man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And again, sometimes we limit this to the idea of, of the sexual relationship in marriage, and certainly uh, that's a component of this, but that one flesh idea is, is uh, the idea that, you know, every part of our lives are intertwined at that point. You can't separate out, you know, this thing is still just mine. When you enter into that covenant relationship, you lose the right to say, this is just for me. You've intertwined everything when you think about that marriage relationship. It's why we we have to have those annoying conversations about, you know, family budgets, right? Because everything is intertwined. It's why we have to have those conversations. I just saw, you know, uh, one of my friends on Facebook, uh, you know, put up this new chore chart chore chart that's hard for me to say in their house and you know for the kids and for mom and dad and everybody we we have to figure out how do we maintain this household because everything is intertwined we have to figure out how do we continue to grow in this relationship that was built on you know like interests and and uh, devotion to the same things and how do we continue to build on that stuff how do we keep doing stuff together because everything's intertwined. And certainly an important and, and uh, unique expression of that one fleshness in marriage is that sexual relationship, but it's not all of it. Everything is intertwined in that relationship. We've, we've lost the right to say, this is mine. We can experience that intimacy in marriage. You know, we, we remember first. Uh, I remember my first job. I, I went to work for a, a guy in our church who owned a lawn maintenance company. I was 14 years old and, and learned uh, quite a bit about uh, different things on that job. And, and one of the things I, I figured out is that, you know, growing up, when we mowed the yard at our house, we, we mowed the yard when it needed mowed, right? When finally dad said, get out there, it's your t- go do that. And, and we just figured out the fastest way to mow that yard. And that's how we did it every time. So I go, I take this job and he says, okay, this, this week we're going to go in this direction. And the next week we're going to go in the other direction. And then next week you're going to mow it in this third direction across the, you know, sideways diagonally in the yard. And I said, okay, why do we do that? He said, well, that's so the ruts don't develop in the yard. And you know, helps it look nice all the time. And so, okay, that's the right way to do 
to mow a yard. And you know, most of the time, I still do that. I'll go one direction one week at the house, and then I'll go another direction the next week at the house, and then, you know, diagonally. Except that sometimes I think, I'm not even sure if this is true, but sometimes I think, well, it's really faster if I just go around in circles. I'm just going to go around in circles because it's faster. I really need to get this done. And every time when I go around in circles, it takes me about the same time. I've never really timed this, you know, but I just think I'm cheating. So it must be faster. I must be able to get this done. And I sort of, it's silly, but I sort of feel guilty when I'm, I'm done mowing the yard because I feel like I haven't done it the right way. You know the great thing, though, is even when I choose to not do it the right way this week, Next week, I have the chance to go back and do it right again. Or the next week. You know, we're talking about mowing the yard. I have the chance to do it again. You know, the same thing's true in our relationships. Same thing's true even in our marriage relationship. Maybe you're in a place where you think, I've, I'm just going around in circles. You have the chance today you have the chance today to start on the right path, to experience marriage and intimacy in marriage just the way God intended. Let's stand and worship him.